1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Once upon a time, a young Joanna Rakoff left a graduate program in London and arrived in New York City with some faint idea that one might make a life as a writer there. The story that follows, My Salinger Year, a memoir with a novelistic pulse and arc, sees Joanna stumble into a job at a prestigious literary agency that represents J.D. Salinger. Her job, to type memos and letters, and principally respond to the thousands of fan letters sent to Salinger, occupies her every waking moment. Those letters, which will never reach Salinger, are for Joanna a window into the power and possibility of writing. In them, she sees how books cross over the threshold into people's lives and personal experiences. Salinger marked these letter writers in extraordinary ways. We follow Joanna through desperate times in unheated apartments, through the trials of a relationship with a fellow writer who cares little for her own ambitions, but who produces a novel as she remains tied to a desk, typing out dictaphone memos and contracts for writers whom she would sacrifice just about anything to switch places with. But my Salinger year is not a story of thwarted ambitions, and more importantly, It is not a story of wasting away doing work that you don't care about. The Joanna we meet, who breaks every rule in responding personally to these fan letters, is drawing from these experiences, living fully in a New York that can wear you down one moment while offering you a vision of a life on the horizon in the next. My Salinger Year is a remarkable story of what happens when a writer gets to live for a moment with the words of readers calling across the void. Written with a beauty and care for language of a novelist, Joanna Rakoff's memoir carries you along with the exuberance of youth while reminding you that actual lived lives deserve to exist as art. My Salinger Year has recently been adapted into a critically acclaimed film starring Margaret Qualley and Sigourney Weaver. Both the adaptation and its source material have made my own recent days more hopeful and more inspired. I'm so pleased to present my interview with Joanna Rakoff. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It is my pleasure to welcome Joanna Rakoff to the show. Joanna is the author of the novel A Fortunate Age, a story of ambition, desire, and friendship amongst a group of Oberlin graduates living in Brooklyn. She has written widely for magazines and newspapers as a critic and reviewer, including the New York Times, Slate, The Guardian, the LA Times, and others. But today, I'm lucky to be speaking to her about her memoir, My Salinger Year. My Salinger Year follows Joanna after her departure from a graduate program in London as she explores New York City on the search for a meaningful life as a writer. That search brings her to a position in a somewhat stuffy, if notable, literary agency where she works for an impossibly demanding boss in an antiquated system that requires that she type all correspondence on an electric typewriter. She soon learns that she'll be responding to fan letters for the agency's star client, J.D. Salinger, known around the office as Jerry. Joanna tells the story of her younger self at a pivot point in her life. A moment of choosing in which New York City in one of its literary heydays will provide the backdrop to decisions about love and longing, loneliness and desire, work that you can take pride in versus work that brings you joy and testing what the world will give you and asking for what you need. The fan letters that pile up are from every conceivable type of reader and person, young and old, veterans of wars, and suffering high school English students. These letters will never reach Salinger, and so Joanna is the one conduit for their attachment to the writer. My Salinger year is an ode to the possibilities and pitfalls of passion and optimism. Joanna gives us a portrait of youthfulness adrift, but not without purpose, not without the ability to choose who she will love and what kind of world she wants to shape for herself. The Jerry that she receives calls from in the office is little more than a voice in her head, but it is a voice that calls to the burgeoning writer within her. It was such a pleasure to live with young Joanna in her Salinger year, first in the memoir and then more recently in the wonderful film adaptation starring the inimitable Sigourney Weaver. Welcome to the show, Joanna Rakoff.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and it's such a pleasure to hear your read on my books.
1: Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, And I just adored my Salinger year. And one of its great pleasures is how much it's an homage to a New York City that is one of the great literary capitals. It's the place you go when you want to become a writer. And you beautifully capture the city as the inner sanctum of the book world, where a young person might try and break into publishing or an agency as a wedge into the world of writers. You open the book with an evocative description of the anticipation and vulnerability of that group of would-be writers. Would you mind reading the section, All of Us Girls?
0: Yeah, of course. Okay, All of Us Girls. There were hundreds of us, thousands of us, carefully dressing in the grey morning light of Brooklyn, Queens, the Lower East Side, leaving our apartments weighed down by tote bags heavy with manuscripts, which we read as we stood in line at the Polish bakery, the Greek deli, the corner diner, waiting to order our coffee light and sweet and our Danish to take on the train where we would hope for a seat so that we might read more before we arrived at our offices in Midtown, Soho, Union Square. We were girls, of course, all of us girls emerging from the sixth train at 51st Street and walking past the Waldorf Astoria, the Seagram building on Park, all of us clad in variations on a theme, the neat skirt and sweater redolent of Sylvia Plath at Smith, each element purchased by parents in some comfortable suburb for our salaries were so low, we could barely afford our rent, much less lunch in the vicinities of our offices or dinners out, even in the cheap neighborhoods we populated, sharing floor throughs with other girls like us, assistants at other agencies, or houses, or the occasional literary nonprofit. All day we sat, our legs crossed at the knee, on our swivel chairs, answering the call of our bosses, ushering in writers with the correct mixture of enthusiasm and remove never belying the fact that we got into this business, not because we wanted to fetch glasses of water for visiting writers, but because we wanted to be writers ourselves. And this seemed the most socially acceptable way to go about doing so, though it was already becoming clear that this was not at all the way to go about doing so. Years ago, as some of our parents pointed out, as my own parents endlessly pointed out, we would have been called secretaries and as with the girls in the secretarial pool back in our parents day very few of us would be promoted very few of us would as they say make it we whispered about the lucky ones the ones with bosses who allowed them to take on books or clients who mentored them or the ones who showed massive rule-breaking initiative wondering if somehow that would be us If we wanted it badly enough to wait out the years of low pay, the years of answering a boss's beck and call, or if what we wanted still was to be on the other side of it all, to be the writer knocking confidently on our boss's door.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to hear you read that. What I think of when I hear you read the opening section is that one of the things that I loved about this memoir and is is truthfully one of the things I enjoy most about a good memoir is that it, as you're reading it, it feels so novelistic, so wonderfully um, full of the craft of story that I find myself having to sort of like stop Myself and and say, okay, this is this is someone's actual life. (laughs) How how was thinking through the way that you would craft the story of this different from how you approached your novel, or were there enough similarities that they tend to blend one into the other?
0: That is my favorite question. (laughs) (laughs) So much so that years (laughs) ago, a friend and I organized a panel at AWP, the big writers' conference, on that was called something like How to Write Your Memoir Like a Novel. (laughs) um, (laughs) So for me, there was a lot of overlap. And part of this comes out of my years of working as a book critic and a books journalist and reading so much memoir during the moment when memoir was becoming kind of the dominant form. I feel like that subsided a little bit, but there was... There was a decade or so when it, there were lots of think pieces about how you know the memoir is the form of our day and the novel is dead, and that seems to thankfully no longer be an idea that is perpetrated in the media. Um, but there was a moment when there was a lot of memoir coming out, and I read so much of it, and in truth, I really hated most of it. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a harsh reader, but you know I'm a a reader who it takes a lot for me to love something and you're a I, critic too. I'm a <laughs> critic it's true I can't turn that critic hat off if you could turn off a hat which you can't but anyway <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I I read so much memoir and I really sort of honestly came to hate the form and feel like I never wanted to read memoir I remember telling a couple of editors of mine please don't assign me memoir because I'm going to give it a bad review and I don't like giving scathing reviews i don't want to i'm not i don't feel engaged with a lot of the memoir that i read and really this was partially because partially a structural thing i'm definitely a big structure person um and the structure of so many memoirs was kind of a flat line rather than rise and fall that you get in a good hmm. novel and partially this had To do with just all the other pieces that go into a book, um, you know, a narrative book, as in the tone and style, um, the character development, the scenes, um, the way scenes are built and um, portrayed. And what I felt in a lot of memoir, and there are, of course, exceptions to this. There were so many memoirs that I loved, but the majority had this feel to me. You you had this feeling that no character, feeling as a reader, I should say, no character was real or developed other than the narrator, and the mm. experience was so, the experience portrayed in the book was so limited to the narrator's experience, and I found this just extremely not compelling, and to the extent that um, I'll just interject here that my Sounder year was not a book that I sought out writing i didn't say to my agent my editor i want to write this book Um, it was an idea that was presented to me and i actually said no repeatedly (laughs) you know really for years because i didn't want to write a memoir i didn't quite see the possibility in memoir that i certainly see now Um, and eventually my agent actually became convinced that i should write it and i agreed to write it and then had a lot of trouble because of that problem seeing the possibility in in the year after I signed the contract I read something like a hundred memoirs and I really you know had this problem with many of them what I eventually came to realize um I I started I had just really an epiphany that kind of came out of nowhere which was simply that I could write a memoir pretending that it was a novel Hmm. and I I wrote on an index card, this is a novel, you are a character, everyone is a character. And I pinned it up on the pin board above my desk. Um, And on that same day, I took out a legal pad, I write a lot on legal pads, which is a very messy way to write, but I can't sort of control it. And that's just what I do. And I decided to change the names of every in quotes, character, you know, everyone who was going to be a major player in the book—all these real people—and normally a memoirist would do this after writing the book, generally for legal reasons to kind of hide the identities of of the people the writer is um, writing about. Um, but I chose to do so beforehand so that I could sort of have some distance on mm. these people and think of them more as characters, mm. and just also kind of give myself a mental break from feeling so beholden to them and beholden to the truth of the story, which is not to say that I lied and made stuff up, I did not, Um, but more that there's a a way in which when you write a memoir, no matter how much love goes into it, um, no matter how positive your portrayals are, you're betraying the people you're writing about purely because you're presenting your take on them. You're writing the story from your point of view, which is never going to align from theirs ever. Mm -hmm. So the the real end of the story is that this um, kind of, I don't know, kind of pragmatic choice, this choice that I made that allowed me to write the book that that you read, um, it became a stylistic choice for me. As in, um, it gave me a distance from my younger self and from the events that transpired. And so that allowed me to write about my younger self with a lack of judgment, you know? So in other words, um all these choices were kind of interwoven um, and they were all in truth, like ultimately quite similar to the way in which I went about writing A Fortunate Age, which was in truth, scene by scene. Um, and I suppose, um in a way that's often the difference between a memoir and a novel that a novel especially if it's say a Jonathan Franzen novel or you know I don't know a George Eliot novel will have a lot of exposition but a lot of the drama will kind of deepen in scenes and you know you'll see so much of the characters through scenes rather than being told what to think of them or hearing the narrator psychologize them and tell you why they're doing things. Um, And in a memoir, there's much more exposition and much more sort of like, when I was 12, this happened.
1: Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm.
0: I wanted my memoir to sort of operate primarily through scene.
1: And it really does. And I think also your comment about uh, other characters getting arcs, I, uh, I wouldn't have been able to put words to it, but I think that's exactly right. I think you you can get tired of the one, uh, you know, the narrator's, character arc in their own story when it becomes the only thing that's interesting. But a good memoir, um, and certainly yours, gives uh, arcs of change and development and drama to other characters, and and that is such a, a novelistic choice. So I, I do, I, I like that now, and I'm going to Um, think about that when I'm looking at other memoirs, because I think it's a really smart way to understand the ones that are doing good work using novelistic techniques. So I had a question about New York at the time, which in, in my mind, this is a rather nostalgic look for me anyway at a New York that may or may not exist anymore, a literary New York. And I wonder, and I know this will be complicated given that you're no longer living in New York, but whether you think it's still possible for a young person to kind of jump in with, risking a vulnerable, kind of semi-impoverished life in the city to try and make it uh, as a writer. Is that possible anymore after COVID, after the just absolutely deepening and widening economic inequalities that so define the city?
0: Yeah, it's funny you ask that because that's kind of what the premise of my first novel is. And in that novel, I'm essentially saying, not really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I was sort of trying to portray the ways in which um writers of different stripes and also um artists in, in in other disciplines, often, especially if they're women, often in in that day and age, which I was writing about the early aughts, um, really were kind of distracted and corrupted by the financial realities of New York. um, And I was writing about a kind of gilded age, a kind of boom time in New York, um, you know, in which it felt like so many writers I knew. And again, other artists, I have a lot of friends who are visual artists and musicians, were um, rather than you're doing the kind of classic thing of getting a job as a waiter or like getting a job that basically allows you as much time as possible to write, were really drawn in by the allure of money, understandably. um, It it was a time when dot-coms were hiring really almost anyone, yeah, who had a degree from a good school. I did my MFA at Columbia and my plan was to go into academia and I was offered a few jobs um, at different universities, none of them like my dream university, I will not name the universities. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be
1: happy not to be known as not Joanna Rakoff's dream. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) I don't even remember how this happened, but I was contacted by a headhunter who was just hiring people for startups. And within 24 hours, I was offered a job at a startup that they had just had their IPO and they were just on a hiring binge. They, hired me, I didn't even have a position. I got there for my first day. They didn't even have a desk or a laptop for me. And they were like, you can just sit over here. And they spent a week just reading a book and eating free food and, or reading a bunch of books and you know, chatting with people, taking walks around Midtown. So um, I had a bunch of friends. I mean, several friends of mine from Columbia, friends of mine from undergrad who were sort of drawn in by that. And some of them did return to writing. Um, when that kind of bubble burst, but many of them did not. Mm. Many, many of them, including some very, very talented people who were, you know, really among the people who I thought, wow, these people are going to be famous. These people are going to make it, you know, in different ways. Um, However, okay, all that said, (laughs) what I observe now, now that I'm much older um, and, you know, as it happens, I, I have a sister who's much older than I am. So I have a niece and two nephews who um, range in age between mid-20s and mid-30s. And I've watched them graduate from college and try to make their way in different fields. My middle nephew is a filmmaker and um, his girlfriend is a photographer, both hugely talented. And they have a whole world of, you know, people, artists, friends. Um, and I just, I know other young people and I have sort of watched, watched them and, I do actually think it's possible. I've kind of come around the bend. The reason I think it's still possible is because New York is still New York. It's still the seat of the publishing industry and you know the neighborhoods just kind of shift. You know you so when I moved to New York in the mid 90s um the neighborhood that all of my Omerlin friends lived in was Williamsburg. And then a few kind of branched out to this weird neighborhood called Carroll Gardens that was supposedly <laughs> really dangerous and like all the bodegas were drug fronts. And I remember interviewing for a job as a writer in residence at a school in this neighborhood, having no idea where I was going. And friends were like, just be really careful on that block. And now it's of course the oh most neighborhood yeah. ever. You know, and you know. People just move further and further out and neighborhoods shift and change. I guess the thing that for me has changed is almost kind of the inverse and opposite of that, which is simply, you no longer need to be in New York to, in, you know, in quotes, make it as a writer. You know, like when I was applying to grad school, the conventional wisdom was really that if you wanted to sort of get an agent publish a book with anything other than a tiny press, you really needed to attend one of three programs, two of which were in New York, Columbia or NYU, or go to, you could go to Iowa. I, like many people with whom I went to grad school, felt like it would be scary to leave New York, like I would lose some kind of foothold. On the literary universe because i was already publishing poetry and literary magazines and writing for magazines and worked in publishing so i felt like i had this kind of little tiny tiny beginning of a niche there and that i would lose it if i went to iowa so i didn't even apply and this is this was not true but that's how i felt now i mean first of all within the mfa world things are completely different um, there are many programs that provide full funding that are great and great writers come out of them. Um, and I see young writers making very smart choices to go to, for instance, like University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where there's an incredible faculty, rather than, and they might get full funding, and then they can move mm-hmm. to New York because they don't have $100,000 in student right. loans, right? <laughs> you know, rather than-
1: No small thing to carry no. around with you.
0: Moving to New York aside, you know, you see writers coming from from all over, right? There isn't that feeling that in order to make it, you have to be in New York. And I think mm-hmm. COVID has only exacerbated that.
1: Yeah, the, I, I think that seeing the way in which that has allowed a, a diffuseness of the the writerly world out of New York is both, you know, for the nostalgic person within me a little bit sad, um, just because it felt like there was this real hub there. Um, but at the same time, everything you're sort of laying out means that it is, it's a chance for a more equitable life and more people to have that opportunity who might not have the the kinds of privileges that would allow you to stay in New York. When you're, um, First arriving at this literary agency, you're given the task of replying to Salinger's fans with this rather bland, cold form letter (laughs) that simply states that Salinger doesn't wish to receive any fan mail, and so the letter cannot be sent on to him. These voices, which become a kind of chorus in the in the novel, um, are calling out into the void and they become incredibly important to you as a young person trying to understand what being a writer means. What did those letters mean to you in the moment when you were trying to imagine what a meaningful writerly life would be?
0: You know, it's funny. They sort of had a dual meaning in that... I might start with the end um, and hope that it's not confusing. For me, they allowed me to become a writer. When I started corresponding with the fans, um, I was writing letters to specific people and I would kind of get lost in their universes. Um, I would... I would read a letter, I would think quite carefully about it, you know, sometimes for weeks, in a few cases for months, trying to figure out what this person was really asking and how to respond. And then would well, spend way too long drafting letters to them. Sometimes the letter would kind of fully form in my head and I would type it up and send it off exactly as written. It's strange to think and I really don't have a full explanation for this, but somehow that act of writing to specific people and kind of responding to their needs, their questions, their requests, um, and envisioning their worlds, um, that was really the first real writing that I did. It was the first time that I was really and truly able to jump off a cliff in the way that you have to to mm. really be a, be a writer you know where you have to kind of make bold choices and just lose yourself in the work prior to that i had always been second guessing myself you know not sure what i was doing should i make this choice should i do that um perseverating on word choices and that kind of thing um in the way that often very young people do And there was something about the fact that I was writing for a specific audience that allowed me to understand the true pleasure of writing in a way that I hadn't before. So it solidified my feeling that I was a writer um, and that I wanted to have that be, have writing be the center of my life to make a living as a writer. And also that I was capable of doing this.
1: It's, it's Um, interesting that like a a seemingly painful job was the one that, um, was able to be a catalyst to that kind of joy in, in the work.
0: Yes, it's true. It's so true. Um, I don't know if one aspect of it was simply that I was breaking a big rule and when you write anything, you have to break rules, right? So as students, you're kind of taught these essay formats and which I always hated. I hated writing, I can't even remember what they are, like one is called like the dumbbell or something. And um, I loathed writing in those formats. And I still to this day- They make
1: for terrible writing.
0: They do, they really do. They're just dreadful. I don't know if that's still taught. I, to this day, I loathe rules. I'm, and it's very hard for me to write following guidelines, even though there's, there is a pleasure in constraint, you know? Um, but I, you know, I've written a lot for magazines, right. Which have like a lot of constraint to them. And for me, it was similar to sort of writing those letters in that, you know, I'm writing a piece for say Vogue and you really have to write in the Vogue voice and you have to Know, have something about what the person is wearing because it's vogue and but you still have to have the piece be quite intellectually inclined and for me, there's always incredible pleasure in kind of writing the piece primarily following the guidelines but then breaking those guidelines mm. in certain places or writing the piece according to the guidelines then doing a rewrite in which I broke them um in you know in small places but enough to make the piece, something I was excited about. So the rule-breaking aspect as a person who's generally extremely obedient might have been what was exciting for me.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, But the other thing I just want to mention about the letters um, is simply that I did not know as much as your average person about Salinger. I was not interested in Salinger. I had never read any Salinger. And these letters, I mean, even just the sheer volume of them, really made starkly apparent. This is going to sound super cheesy. So just cheese <laughs> all is it. allowed here. So, <laughs> I mean, they showed for me, they showed me the power of literature, that these, this novel and these stories written a very long time ago had made people all over the world feel seen to use like really annoying, even cheesier contemporary parlance, you know, or understood less alone. They identified so strongly with Salinger's characters and the ideas that those characters espouse and the thoughts and feelings of those characters. They loved those characters. They almost felt like, I don't know, that those characters were family or friends Mm -hmm. and these books, these books really changed people's lives. And it made me, it obviously made me rethink Salinger and think, okay, if this many people love him and they're writing these impassioned letters, he can't be terrible. I really should read him. But the larger picture was that it made me see that reading and literature were not some kind of precious ivory tower thing, which is sort of what I'd been led to believe um, in my very pragmatic upbringing. You know, I think I really had this idea that reading was something precious, that, um, and it was a luxury, it was something silly. And these letters showed me that it was not, that books are a necessity and reading is a necessity, and there's an urgency to great literature that can truly change and save people's lives.
1: That's beautifully said. I, I I think Salinger is is such an interesting paradox for you in the book because he's the he's the central conceit in a lot of ways, but he's also this person who you know turned himself utterly inward, and yet has this very externalized power, and and something that clearly influences <clears throat> millions and had a giant turning point influence on you? And I wonder whether that, that paradox was important to you as you were writing for this, this man who never wanted to be seen, never wanted to hear from these people who were so um, obsessively, wonderfully, and sometimes frighteningly um, defined by their reading of, of his work. Uh, what did it mean for you that the man who was doing that didn't want anything to do with them?
0: Oh, God. I mean, it's really hard to reconcile. I I think largely what happened is, to me, in terms of Salinger's desire for solitude, um, as time went by, so when I worked at the agency, I should step back and say, I didn't understand why he would not want to hear from his fans. Before I really sort of got to know him on the phone, I felt a little bit irritated by it. Um, And then I did actually, because I did get to know him on the phone, um, I felt a kind of disconnect between the very warm, friendly, engaged, kind of respectful man um, with whom I spoke, you know, every week or so, or sometimes more, sometimes less. And the Salinger who was described to me both by um, some of my co- my colleagues at the agency who had known him for a long time, or they didn't really know him, but they had had dealings with him, and also in the media where he was really portrayed as this kind of cranky monster, you know, I haven't read it, but his daughter, Peggy Salinger, wrote a memoir in which she describes him as drinking his own urine. I don't even know the context for that, but there was a lot of feeling of like, he's this crazy weirdo. But then the man I spoke to on the phone was a very normal person who was very nice and friendly. So I didn't quite understand what was going on there. And part of my impetus for writing back to the fans was because I think a little bit of me, a little part of me thought, you know, if he saw these letters, he would want to write back to these people. He doesn't. So I'm just going to do it in his place. I'm going to kind of help him out here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the qualities that I really admire about my Salinger year, and and which makes it different from a lot of contemporary memoir, is how hopeful it is and and joyous. (laughs) Um, Even in the moments where you you really feel for younger Joanna, struggling with loneliness and indecision and feeling stuck, there's a lot of uh, very clear optimism and wonder about the possibilities of a young person, you know, coming into a creative life and i I loved that about the book. and i and I wondered, as you you said yourself, you got some distance from your younger self in in writing a more novelistic account of that time. um, whether you thought of yourself then as particularly having that hopefulness or whether it is something that comes um from being a bit older
0: during the pandemic, I've received, A lot of comments and mail and seeing a lot of people posting on Instagram saying that my sounder year is their comfort read and you know they reread it during the pandemic because it's their comfort read um and I thought wow I wrote a book that's a comfort read that's not what I thought it was going to be um but I love that I I think as in describing it as joyful um I think that that was probably true for me at the time um and I think it probably is mostly true for me now. Um, I, I think that I really, the moment that I'm describing in the book, even though there were huge difficulties, um, I mean, I, I think that in the book, I don't even fully portray how precarious was my financial situation at the time. You know, it was very precarious. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it was scary at times. But despite that, it was a very fun, exciting, happy time in which a lot seemed possible. Um, it, you, you know, I think Joan Didion writes about this and goodbye to all that you know, about moving to New York and feeling like anything could be possible. Like it didn't matter that she had no money and had to charge lunch at Bloomingdale's a thing that I did too, actually (laughs) Um, um, not at Bloomingdale's, but at Saks and um, you know, I, I, but it didn't matter because she could do anything like she could become a high end escort, she could sell a story to a women's magazine, she could do anything. And I felt a lot of that too, that You know i saw people doing so many different things and i would go to a party and meet someone who was like i'm a mormon and i'm one of 15 children and my father had three wives and i left all that behind and i'm starting a magazine here in new york (laughs) and it just felt like you know a magazine about coffee it felt it felt like everyone and anyone was doing all sorts of things that they were very excited about at any given time and that was a good match for who I was it wasn't that I wanted to do anything and everything it it just felt that being surrounded by that feeling of possibility um was made me feel that anything was possible and that uh, doesn't I,
1: mean that in the in the reading that there weren't Very clear moments of that precariousness I'm thinking about when you and Don move into that terrible apartment and it doesn't have a (laughs) sink and it seems like anything you're going to turn on is going to explode and there's no heat. And I just thought, oh, this is I mean, it's, it's not just an inconvenience. It's, you know, kind of life or death things. But there is imbued in it what I think uh, you're describing about yourself, which is there is, um, you know, a joyousness and a hopefulness, even in those moments, which are are clearly scary for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's very true. And I, I will say that I... I am writing, um, I have a new book that is due in 90 days. Um, oh my God, what are you doing talking to
1: me? me? <laughs> <laughs> I know.
0: Um, and um, that book is also a memoir. I've been writing two books simultaneously, a novel and a memoir, but the memoir has to be turned in first. And the memoir is about my family and it's a. it covers a much broader swath of time. I mean, it's sort of, in a way, kind of, has to traverse my whole life, and also has to go back in time. And um, there are reported elements having to do with my family before I was born. And it centers on a secret that was kept from me that sort of determined many things about my family. Um, but I was unaware of, of the secret because it was a secret, of course. So. It's been, I think, difficult for me figuring out this book, which I've been working on for um, a long time with with actually huge breaks to work on the film. But um, it's been difficult for me to figure out the tone and style for this book, because it is a much darker book. And mm. it this subject is much darker. But I am not by nature a kind of a grim, dark person. And I don't It doesn't feel natural to me to write a book that has this kind of grim, spare style. So it's been a little bit of a challenge to kind of figure out how do you tell a very dark story when you are not a very dark person? You know, does that make Mm -hmm. any
1: sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm now so fascinated and need, <laughs> need to find out the secret. So I can't wait for you to to finish it and and get it out there for us. I I wanted to ask you about there, there's an aspect of the novel that I I find really delightful, and that is how antiquated the the workspace that you that you join is. It both is um, a kind of flashback to a moment in the the mid to late 90s, in which there was a transition happening to computers, to email, but it also is the particularity of this office, and it's wanting to hold on to that um, older, uh, seemingly more staid technology. I'm thinking of Elif Batuman's wonderful novel, The Idiot, which begins with, I think, one of the funniest representations of late 90s college life, the presentation of the email address. <laughs> that Baujaman's um protagonist has no idea what to do with. And I feel like these there are these wonderful scenes in my Salinger year in which Joanna is made to type all the correspondence out on the typewriter while there's a computer sitting like in arm's reach from her. And I wonder why it was important for you to capture this transitional moment in our technological world.
0: Well, you know, part of what I mentioned earlier that I this book was not my idea. It was presented to me. And as once I sort of finally came around to writing the book, part of what led me to realize that I wanted to write it, that I was okay with writing it, was actually my interest in that specific moment in time. Um, I, I thought I spent a lot of time during, there was this kind of two-week period in which I was trying to figure out if I was going to write this book or not. And I actually did research into 1996 and just to kind of jog my memory, which worked really well. And I remembered back that and realized that that was the year that the New York Times website launched. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And that was the year that salon launched. Mm. And these things are just part of the fabric of our life. I mean, not that everyone reads salon now, but you know, online magazines in general, especially online magazines that sort of come out of what Salon pioneered, which are-
1: Oh magazines. yeah, it gave birth to so many.
0: Yes, yes. Like gave birth to magazines that kind of prioritize the personal voice, first person, um, that also present interviews with kind of more, that are less pegged to a movie coming out or more fringe um, subjects. Um, it really changed media and it changed- The world. And it changed the way in that it changed the way we read. It changed the way we think about what is newsworthy. It changed the way we think about news. So, I mean, these felt like very momentous things to me. And I became fascinated by what exactly that moment was like, as in people were just starting to have cell phones, but most people didn't have them. In America, that is. In Europe, actually, a lot more people did. But it was a moment when, when I thought back on my life in 1996. A lot of what I thought about was actually being alone, walking down 87th Street by myself. I remember a day when I somehow in a stupor took the train uptown instead of downtown, even though I'd been taking this train for like my whole life, basically. I just kind of was thinking about something else I might've been reading. And at um, 72nd Street, I realized, oh my God, I took the train in the wrong direction. You know what? I'm just gonna get out and take a walk around here. And I walked around for a couple of hours. And I, sh- if I had had a cell phone, none of this would have happened. You know, mm-hmm. I would have been in touch with everyone I knew in the entire world, texting with them. I would have looked up where to go and what to do. And what I guess what I'm trying to say is on a micro level, to me that felt kind of like the last moment when a person could truly be alone, not just 1996, but 1997, 98. After that, pretty much everyone had a flip phone at least. And also, that I think that was the start of our thinking about ourselves, our identities, and the texture of our lives in a very different way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, have some deep nostalgia for the, the quiet and the privacy and the um, chance to be alone with yourself. That I certainly didn't recognize then um but but recognize very clearly now and the idea of wandering which i think you described so so nicely that you could get off on you know train and wander somewhere that you wouldn't know or wouldn't have a map of or wouldn't be able to quickly figure out via a phone um and that has all disappeared and it's interesting that for young Joanna, it is this this great challenge that she has to take on the typewriter, and the, <laughs> and the dictaphone, which is even more of a antiquated device, and yet. It it's clearly part of that transition to becoming a writer, even though it's this antiquated technology, and although you're still writing on legal pads, so maybe you're holding a little bit of it now, which is an <laughs> I, I hope you are because it's a nice thing. So you, you already you know talked a little bit about how you show up at this place where um, J D Salinger is you know, the star client and you haven't read any Salinger and, you know, talking with friends, you're sort of outed in uh, as, as having not, you know, ever gotten around to him. Um, but I wonder what post having read, I think you read most of his, his work, uh, what it meant to you then, and perhaps what it means to you now, just the fiction itself.
2: Well,
0: at the time, his fiction just bowled me over with its stylistic boldness. I really was not prepared for it. I thought that I was going to read what I thought of as New Yorker stories, you know, very kind of staid, solemn stories about men driving through montana and their pickup truck you know not that i knew he was a new yorker but there's a kind of new yorker story i don't know type that i had been reading for my whole life and that's what i thought i was going to read kind of dull boring stories basically that, that were very trivial as well that you know were sort of supposed to be comic um Maybe I thought they weren't really going to be funny, that the humor was going to be quite archaic and that they were going to be kind of just these trivial entertainments, basically. And what I found was that they were stories of incredible depth and complexity um, just in terms of the things I was talking about earlier, you know, his style is so singular and the way he puts sentences together, the way he narrates things, the way he introduces characters and describes them, it reminded me so much actually of David Foster Wallace, who I read for the first time during that year. And also, honestly, his sense of humor reminded me of David Foster Wallace, like a kind of very low key, dark humor, um, a lot of which comes through close observation of routines, places, people. I think and, that's
1: I, that's truly an original com- comparison. I've not heard that anywhere before. You ought to get that written down before somebody it? nags it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Maybe when I turn in this book, I'll write a little piece about it. If someone
1: should, it. And,
0: um, yeah, it reminded me of a lot of the. Um, I mean, just to back up, like so. This is the mid '90s, and when I was in college, which I think is the same time you were in college, just about um, there was this movement called Dirty Realism that was you know, um, writers like Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, Bobby Ann Mason, Jean Ann Phillips. And um, I read all of these people and I did really love most of them, but their work tended to be quite spare and often about um, characters who don't ha- aren't able to articulate their thoughts, desires, um, what have you, like the complexity of their feelings who are kind of trapped in their bodies, unable to kind of make clear what they want or need. These, the worlds that they were presenting were really quite unfamiliar to me um, as a New York Jew (laughs) from a a kind of hyper literate immigrant family um, in which people read all the time and argued frantically. And, you know, I had not read all that much fiction that actually seemed to reflect the world um, I was from. I knew that my father very strongly related to the Glass family, um, but these stories definitely, uh, by stories I'm including Catcher, really seemed uh, like a piece of me. They felt very reflective of the world that I knew. And the people in them felt very familiar to me. And I, there was a kind of there's a refreshing quality to them that I I felt like, wow you know, Salinger wrote these stories decades ago, but they're reflecting back the world that I know. Um, and it was interesting and exciting. And part of that had to do with the quality of his language, the kind of like dense, urgent conversational language. Um, and so meanwhile, the other little literary critic thing I'll just say is that the dirty realists were kind of that predominant style was kind of waning a bit by the mm-hmm. time I mm-hmm. read Salinger and a new style was kind of coming into vogue, which was best is best represented by David Foster Wallace. Um there are other writers of this ilk, but there was this kind of very dense, very darkly humorous. Um I was really excited by these this group of writers. Um and one of them actually being Jonathan Franzen, who was not famous in the way he is now. Salinger seemed to have much more in common with them. um, And his work felt very modern and fresh and contemporary and exciting to me. Um, And I just was shocked by this. And the quick postscript to really answer your question is that it still feels that way to me. Mm. Um, It does not feel antiquated and archaic and dated to me, it still feels exciting to me when I reread it. I, of course, have favorites, you know, that feel more fresh and exciting to me. Mm -hmm. But every time I reread Catcher, I think this is one of the greatest novels ever written.
1: Wow, that's that's so interesting. And I I love the comparison with David Foster Wallace and that and that moment, because it really was mid 90s transitional, uh, I think, in the what was in favor anyway, at least in American publishing. So it's fascinating to me that Salinger fit despite his own sort of being out of the uh the trends of the time fit within that transitional moment. I, I find that totally fascinating. The film adaptation of your book is really wonderful. I had an mm-hmm. opportunity to to watch it recently and I just think it 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 really does um good service to to your work uh, which is not very often the case, uh, I feel like adaptations I find to be um, usually disappointing, and this one was not. Of course, there are some missing scenes and little changes that I I was attached to in the book, but that's bound to happen. And you know, seeing New York visually brought to life on the screen at this moment with Sigourney Weaver of all people is is really perfect. What was your role in the adaptation, if if any, and how do you feel about the final product?
0: I love the film. And I, of course, I know that feeling of watching the film adaptation of a book and feeling like, oh God, they left out so much because it's it's inevitable with any book length work to leave out so much. It just, it's not possible to sort of put it all in, but there's always that feeling of loss. I feel that whenever I see an adaptation <laughs> um, and that feeling of this isn't the way I pictured it as I read it, or or that maybe the story was slightly different to the filmmaker than it was to you. I definitely felt that way about the goldfinch, but anyway. Oh um, yeah,
1: yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, So my, um, but I love the film and part of why I love the film is because the director, Philippe Falardeau, really captured, I think, the mood of the book, visually captured, Mm -hmm. I should say, the mood of the book and this was partly a collaboration yeah the mood effort. is
1: spot spot on
0: right like yes it's like the color palette the places in which he puts the characters um the, it just all is perfect and it, in, in a way it, there's a little bit of a kind of wes anderson feel to it in terms of the visual style you know in that it it's obviously the 90s it she's obviously, she being me is obviously working in this dated, weird office that looks like it's the 40s, but at the same time, it's a little bit stylized. So it a little bit feels like you're a few steps removed from reality. It kind of it's not pure realism in terms of the visual style. And I love that. And I feel like I should say that he this was a collaborative effort. It wasn't all him. Like he certainly had a vision for the film and he has an incredible visual sense, but, um, he hired a team of truly, truly visionary, all women, um, to work for him. The cinematographer, Sarah Mashara, um, is, has won a million awards and she has her own very distinct, um, kind of photographic style. I can't, quite pinpointed but i've i've seen other works of hers and they have there's a lot of overlap in the way the films look um and same with the costume designer um and the set designer and props person were just incredible they built the the office that you see in the film they rented a floor a whole floor of a building in downtown Montreal that was designed by the same architect who designed the Empire State Building
2: hmm.
0: so they thought it you know it has a very deco New York feel and the set designer built basically built a fake version of my office based on my descriptions my drawings we were you know on the phone and texting all the time she would be like I'm looking for phones. I'm going to send you, I'm going to email you eight different phones. Tell me which one looks like the phones in your office. Hmm. Or like, I'm out buying vintage typewriters. I'm going to send you a bunch of typewriters. Tell me which one looked like the typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> like, what did the ceiling look like? What did the bookcases look like? So and this is giving you, um, your answer, which is to say that I was very involved in the production. Um, Philippe is kind of an auteur director, which is part of the reason I was excited to work with him rather than going with like a big studio. And with all of his films that he really that were really his, he had worked collaboratively um, adapting something, like a play, a book, an article. And he made it clear from the start that he would need me and want me involved at every step of the way. And that was in fact what happened. So We collaborated on the screenplay for, I was officially a consultant. Um, And basically he would write a draft of the screenplay, send it to me. I would have some period of time a week, sometimes less, sometimes more. I would read it and mark it up, draft a huge letter um, just with suggestions. And he would then do a rewrite, send it to me. At a certain point it would go to the producers before it went to me. And they would see my notes. And eventually, I did a big, big um, edit after that. And you know, that was largely the script that they used. Even in the moments before we started shooting, there would be some sort of logistical problem. There was a scene that was supposed to involve the writer Mary Gatescale, but she would not give them permission to portray her. So we had to completely change the scene. Oh my um, and goodness. that happened to be. A scene that Philippe had written wholesale based on something that did happen to me, but the dialogue was not what happens in the scene is not at all what happened in real life. And so, you know, he said to me, Wait, what are we gonna do? And I think a week before we went into production, I was I was like, What if we had Rachel Cusk in it? And he was like, That's a great idea. I and... thought that
1: was added in when when Cusk showed up. I was like, I don't think that was in the in the book.
0: No, and that came out of he he said to me, you know, who were you reading in and around 1995, 96? And I made a list. Um, And the top of the list was Rachel Cusk because I had read her first novel while I was a grad student in London. And I loved it and absolutely loved it, Saving Agnes. And it was a huge novel at the time. And then I came back to America and discovered that it hadn't even been published here and no one knew what it was. And so because I was, and so I'm a sort of very, very long. I read every single one of her books and was a fan of hers before she was even known at all here. So he thought that might be a fun thing to to add in. Um, so anyway, I was I was quite involved and definitely felt really excited um to be involved in the way that I was. I was on set for a week. Um, I was in touch with not actually Sigourney and Margaret before we started production but some of the other actors you know I had phone calls with them where they wanted to try out their voices for me and ask me questions about the characters and it was really fun
1: I mean it, it must have been i i think you're in a lucky position to have that much input into the writing and then also the scene design as well that must feel just really wonderful to have that kind of imprint on it i think sometimes it's a kind of process of letting go mournfully of your work as it, you know, becomes necessarily something new, but I, I love that you were able to be so, so involved. Um, there's, I, I, I just, can't say enough about how fabulous Margaret is it Qualey or Qualley? Quali is in it. She's just I, I couldn't have imagined a, a more perfect person to play you in the film. She just really captured so much of the spirit of um, what at least for me was the, the the vibe and the feel of the book. And I, I wonder if you were similarly, I, I bet you were, but I, I wonder <laughs> if you were happy with her on screen.
0: I was. I mean, she is wonderful. She was my first choice for the part. We cast her when she had only, she really only had two things that anyone had seen. Um, One was a small film called Novitiate, where she plays a young would-be nun. Um, And the other, and this is what led me to suggest her for the role, was The Leftovers, in which she plays the daughter, Jill, and she's She's so
1: great. She's
0: so good. She's so great. And I um, my husband, Kirill, and I were watching it. And I kept thinking, what about her? We were in the process of casting. And the casting director and the producers and everyone really wanted to kind of land a huge star for the me role. And all sorts of names were being tossed out, you know, just any anyone you can think of who's a huge star under the age of, let's just say, 35 was being tossed out. But Philippe and I both felt really strongly that in order to really capture the story, the actress had to be close to the age that I was in the book. Um, I remember Philippe saying to me over coffee, it can't be a 30-year-old. A 30-year-old is so different from a 23-year-old. <laughs> like her face, you know, the way she moves in the world, she has a confidence that a 23-year-old doesn't have. And I hadn't actually even thought of it that way. I was like, you're right, that's true. So we were looking at casting actresses who were, we knew it was gonna be at least a year before we went into production. We were looking at casting very young actresses and the pool was very small for people who were very famous, very talented, appropriate for the role and the right age. And so one night we were watching The Leftovers and Kirill turned to me and said, you know, why can't she play you? Who is she? And I was like, I have no idea. And the next day I had a call and I had been thinking this, but I thought there's no way they would consider her because she's not famous. And I looked her up, found out a little bit about her. There was not that much information available, actually. I suggested her to Philippe and he said, oh, the casting director loves her for this role and she knows about the role and she would love to play it, but I'm just not sure the producers would go for it. And then, I don't know, it felt like a minute later she was cast.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and you caught her just as she was uh you know about to rocket into yeah. the, into the mainstream view and and her latest project made is is really wonderful and heartbreaking and and at times hard to watch, but she's equally wonderful in it. Um did I catch you in a cameo at the end of the film going into an elevator or is that not you?
0: Yes, that is me and a hilarious Little thing about that cameo is that the director and costume designer asked me to bring down some clothing, to bring it down, to bring up to Montreal mm-hmm. some clothing that I had had in that year um, in 1996 because I still had some of it, and um, so I did. And I don't know why I didn't. I don't. I didn't even think about why. I didn't know if they thought like Margaret might wear some of it, even though she is a gazillion feet tall, and I am not. Um, but um, but so I brought along this jacket, this green suede jacket that I wore every day during that year that everyone in my life knows and associates with me and all of my old friends and mm-hmm. my husband. And they they were like, we love this. Why don't you just wear this um, in your cameo? And I was like, really? It was about 104 degrees in my <laughs> And I was like, um. And so I did. So it was kind of sweet that I got to do the cameo wearing the thing that I wore during my actual salander year.
1: Yeah. And I'm I'm shocked that you owned anything from it. That's that's pretty great. <laughs> um so I, I I always end by what's really, in many ways, my favorite part of this, which is getting to find out a little bit about what you're loving to read right now and um, maybe what you're even recommending to your friends who are writers or critics or artists. What's on your bedside table and what's exciting for you right now?
0: Oh, okay. So what's on my bedside table? So what is literally on my bedside table right now are... Um, two books. One is a novel. One is a new, brand new nonfiction book I, out now, basically. So um, the novel is called Tides, and it's by a writer named Sarah Freeman. It's a debut novel. It is so wonderful. It's written, um, this is going to make it sound not wonderful, but it, it, it's written in this kind of sparse style that I feel like people blurbs, whatever they all keep comparing it to Rachel Cusk, but it's actually nothing like Rachel Cusk at all. She does not write like this. So each page just will have a paragraph on it or two paragraphs. It's essentially this very simple story of a woman who arrives in a small, moneyed town on the coast of Massachusetts from Montreal, actually, coincidentally, and you don't know why she's there and. it's not clear what is happening with her. She has a little bit of money to tide her over, but she keeps kind of putting herself in these situations that are not quite safe because she doesn't have enough money to kind of rent an apartment. She doesn't have any clothing with her. And pretty quickly you find out that she um, had been married and essentially is a middle-class person um, who, and she had had a stillbirth and just kind of abandoned her life.
2: Hmm.
0: And so I'm not really giving anything away. You find this out pretty quickly. And it follows her during these months after she arrives in this town. Um, It's a kind of brutal read. And it's it's certainly not a book for everyone, but I absolutely love it. Um, It came recommended to me by several different people who thought I might like it. This is an abnormal novel for me, though. I'm a person who tends to like really big novels, and I will say what's also sitting on my bedside table is a novel that um, I just read that is not out yet. That's one of my favorite novels. Of I mean, not just the last few years, but ever. Oh wow! It's called French- I know, I know, but it's the truth. It's called Fellowship Point, and it's by a wonderful novelist named Alice Elliot Dark, who has a couple of other novels that came out a long time ago. Um, she's kind of considered like a writer's writer in
1: a way. and um, Fellowship those novels, Point, you said?
0: It's called Fellowship Point. It's a huge novel that, I mean, I don't know how long it is, but it's a big, giant novel um, that is essentially a, a modern take or a gloss, a retelling of a Victorian novel of property in which the main characters are all women. And it gets into all sorts of issues having to do with, like, who has a right to the land of a particular place, and what is, if someone is owned this land, what is their relationship with the native peoples of it? But that's not the main focus. It's just this wonderful, wonderful kind of epic novel, basically about two elderly ladies who've known each other their whole lives, made very different choices in their lives, and now are facing all sorts of crises um, having to do with um, this piece of property called Fellowship Point that their ancestors settled, um, you know, many, 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 many years before. And there's another younger character who is um, a young editor um, at a publishing house, a children's book publishing house in New York, who is a single mother and her own mother who is mentally ill. And this young woman is taking care of both her mother and her daughter. And this sounds very grim and depressing, but it's not. (laughs) And it's just a wonderful, wonderful, huge novel that, I mean, it's the kind of novel where I finished it. And in the weeks afterwards, I would think back on a moment in it and think wait, did that happen to me? Did that happen to a friend? Who did that happen to? And then remember, oh my God, wait, it happened to Polly, you
2: know, or
0: it happened to Nan. Um, It's that kind of novel that you truly can give yourself over to. I love it so much. Um, It's not out until the spring. It sounds
1: epic in every possible meaning of that word.
0: (laughs) Yes. It's so, so good. And then the final book that's on my nightstand, I'll just say is a Book by the writer Evan Hughes, who's a journalist, writes for The Times Magazine, what have you. He's a great writer, and he has a new book about. Um, here to speaking of grim things, the opioid crisis, and it's called The Hard Sell, and he basically spent years investigating a company. It's not, um, you know, the Sackler family. It's a different company that produced um, an opioid that killed many many people and he follows them through like their development of this opioid you know through their trial and imprisonment and what have you oh, wow. um i haven't read it yet um but i read the new york times magazine piece on which it's based and i loved it
1: the um you know the opioid crisis and its aftermath is really the i mean we're learning book by book article by article that it's the great crime of our of our century maybe
0: So, so true, yes,
1: yeah. Well, these are wonderful books. I can't wait for especially Fellowship Point, which just sounds like something to absolutely submerge in. Um, But I'll be putting links um, for these on the website so that when they are out and available, um, that people can rush and grab them, as well as Salinger Year, both uh, the book and the movie. Um, But Joanna, it was such a privilege to get to talk to you today. Thanks so much for spending the time.
0: Oh my God, Chris, it was wonderful. I am such a huge fan of the podcast. I could listen to you talk all day.
1: So I'm (laughs) incredibly flattered. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Take care. Bye.
1: Well, that's all from me for now. My heartfelt thanks to Joanna Rakoff, whose recommendations can be found at burnedbybooks.com, with links to purchase them from Buffalo Street Books, Ithaca's cooperatively owned bookstore. Next week's show will feature debut novelist Sochil Gonzalez, whose Olga Dies Dreaming is currently on the New York Times bestseller list. Please find all of our previous episodes episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcasting services. Take a moment to rate the show to help other listeners find us. And thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.